How did you sleep last night? I'm going to go out on a limb and say the answer to this question is one of the biggest health metrics that we know. It tells you so much about your overall health, well-being, and mental health that it can be considered a pillar in health. Sleep is a complicated topic because in some circles we hear the importance of it and in other circles it's almost looked down upon. In fact, I know of many corporations that will remark at the importance of their employees logging on from home at night and they can even monitor if their employees are working late at night through their network. And so in some circles there is almost a heroic emphasis on doing as much with as least amount of sleep as possible. Yet the data is stacked up on the importance of sleep. And when we are sleeping well, so many other things fall in place. In today's episode, I invite my good friend and colleague, Dr. John Neustadt, on to speak about insomnia. He is an expert in the neurohormonal components of insomnia and nutrient and hygiene approaches to addressing insomnia. Without further ado, I'm going to welcome my guest, Dr. John Newstad, on today's episode. Welcome to the next episode of the One Thing Podcast. Dr. Newstad, welcome back to the One Thing Podcast. It's great to have you back on this time speaking with us about insomnia. Oh, thank you. I had such a great time with you last uh, last time. It's truly uh, phenomenal to be have been invited back. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I, I had a great time as well. Um, and uh, we were just kind of catching up off, offline about the busyness of life. And, you know, I think you and I, you know, aren't, and aren't an exception when it comes to um, the, you know, the, the focus on sleep and the need for sleep and the impact when we don't get sleep on our lives. So um, we were just talking about how busy both of us are. And um, it was kind of a great intro into today's topic. Yes, indeed. I think anybody can relate to that. So many people have busy lives with careers or whether it's you know, school, even high schoolers now are, are really burning the candle at both ends and, and, and pressing hard for, for exams and homework and definitely in college and graduate school. But when people are out in their lives and their careers and have families and kids and that challenge with finding that balance to get enough hours of sleep and uh, you know, can, be, can be difficult. So hopefully some information uh, that you and I are going to talk about today will provide some perspective for people where they really not only make it a priority, but understand some simple things they can do to improve not just the, the quantity of their sleep, but the quality of their sleep as well. Yeah, so I, I think that that's a great place to start. Um, so let's just kind of talk about sleep. I mean, I think this is obviously uh, a problem that a lot of people deal with. Um, can you kind of give us some context as to sleep disruption, insomnia, and just kind of define some key terms that we can think about while we're talking today? Absolutely. And everybody understands. We, we all need to sleep. Anybody who hasn't slept very quickly uh, knows, and I think it's everyone at some point 
uh, in time or another has had one or more nights where they haven't slept well or maybe even pulled an all-nighter, that the short-term effects are you know, really wreak havoc on our quality of life and, and how we function in, in the world. And just one night of, of poor sleep decreases our ability to learn information, to process new information that we're getting. It decreases our ability to recall memories and, and engage in conversations. It decreases ability uh, to uh, deal with just the stresses and the challenges of, of everyday life. And it definitely decreases our energy and our mood and people just feel crummier when they're not, not sleeping well. And technically, you know, there are different, lots of different reasons why people don't sleep well and there are different diagnoses for actual sleep disorders. Sleeping poorly one or a few nights is not uh, considered a sleep disorder. The most common sleep disorder is insomnia. And that affects uh, 80 million people have some type of difficulty sleeping at some point in their life. In order for it to be an actual diagnosis, though, it has to be happening consistently for three months. But the health effects set in you know, much sooner than three months, as anyone, as I mentioned, anybody who's experienced it will tell you. It's you know, one night or two nights of not sleeping well, and, and you know, we feel it, and it impacts our relationships. But longer term, if people aren't sleeping enough, what, what it does is it increases the risk for diabetes and heart disease, uh, early death, uh, obesity, uh, depression, uh, substance abuse, uh, such as alcoholism, uh, all of that is part of the sort of constellations of not just effects from, from poor sleep, but in some cases, the result of, of poor sleep. So uh, depression, for example, every psychiatric condition has a sleep component uh, problem as part of it. Uh, and it definitely increases one's risk for substance abuse. Mm -hmm. 80 million people, as I mentioned, have some difficulty sleeping in the U.S., but in primary care settings, you know, when, when somebody comes in and sees uh, you and I, for example, as a patient, 70% of those primary care encounters have some sort of sleep issue involved in them. And unfortunately, patients don't bring it up because maybe they don't think it's relevant to their chief complaint, which really they think is, you know, is bothering them the most. And a lot of doctors just don't even screen or don't even ask about it. So it's very important if somebody is having difficulty sleeping to make sure you mention that to your, your healthcare provider, yeah. uh, but also understand how important it is to make sleep a priority. And uh, I'm sure today we're going to be talking about, we'll, we'll be talking about things that, that people can do to hopefully take charge of that and, and improve their sleep. Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about it, like before um, the invention of electricity, um, you know, we, we would wake up likely when the sun came up and our body would, um, we would do work. And as the day would go along, we'd, we'd acquire something that is, I think it's called sleep pressure which kind of uh, puts the pressure on gradually the the need to sleep when electricity came along then it gave us this this opportunity to push the day further then computers came along which 
um, extended the workday. So we're kind of in, in a situation where those natural factors that were in place have been removed. And our bodies have, and they function on a circadian rhythm. And that is a 24 hour cycle. And when it comes to sleep, uh, the hormonal changes that, that happen during that's 24 hours are stimulated by light. And specifically, as the sun goes down in the evening, our bodies then start to secrete more melatonin. And melatonin is there to help us, among other things, but with respect to sleep, get our bodies ready for sleep. It typically starts to to go up, you know, after the sun sets, it peaks at about 10 o'clock at night, and then it, it decreases by, you know, one in the morning, it's, it's, it's going, going down. And that 24-hour cycle has been disrupted by technology. Now we have 24-hour a day artificial light when we want it. You just flip a switch and the lights, lights come on, or you can watch television. And that stimulation really can affect how our bodies get ready for, um, for sleep, how, how we self-regulate uh, hormonally, and also the quality of our sleep. If we look at computers, for example, specifically e-readers like tablets and iPads uh, and phones, iPhones, the research, there's a clinical trial that, that came out uh, two years ago, I believe at this point, that looked at the effect of people reading on their devices in bed at night prior to going to sleep versus people reading good old fashioned print books. Mm -hmm. And what they found is the people who were on their screens in bed at night reading, it took them about 10 minutes longer to fall asleep. Mm -hmm. And it took them about uh, 10 or 20 minutes longer to wake up in the morning. But mo even more important than that, what they discovered was it took people who were on these e-readers, on these devices reading at night, the next day it took them hours, hours longer to feel fully awake and ready for their, their day. Hmm. So it has a tremendous impact, those, those devices and that technology. And what they discovered, what, what research has shown is the light from those devices specifically depletes melatonin. And anyone who has been reading in bed on a phone or an iPad or, or scrolling on the internet or watching YouTube, whatever it is, that maybe they're tired. And I know I've experienced this. I've done this and I'm, I'm in bed and I'm tired and I'm ready to go to bed and I get on my, my phone and I'm scrolling and looking at stuff. And 10 minutes later where I would use, I was tired before and ready to close my eyes. I was wide awake. Mm -hmm. And before that study, I didn't really understand the mechanism of it, but the mechanism appears to be what it's doing is it's depleting our melatonin. So one of the things that I tell people is make your bedrooms a, a screen free zone. Mm -hmm. Don't take your phones in or your tablets into your bedroom at night. That's so prevalent. And also what a new study just found is a lot of kids and teenagers are doing that now as well because that's what they see their parents doing. And so we need to model good behavior for the next generation, I believe, right. as well, because sleep deprivation is an epidemic and the results 
uh, the health and the psychological results of not getting enough sleep are devastating. Right. So people are clever and, and clever people invent stuff to let them have their phones in their bed with, without it disrupting their sleep. So there's the, in, the uh, invention of the blue light blockers. What do you think about those? So it's thought that it's the blue light from the devices, and great point, that actually is causing the depletion of the melatonin. So it depends on, on, on what do I think? I think it may work. I think it may not work. I would like to see a little more research on it in terms of melatonin and what, is, what it does to the body because there, there's other wavelengths of light besides just the blue light. So, you know, the, the picture is not necessarily how it comes down to one one wavelength of light and that's causing all of the problems. Mm -hmm. um, we know historically that our, you know, we just didn't evolve to have those devices and that stimulation, that light in bed when we go to sleep. So if, if people want to do that and they find that they are uh, able to still fall asleep and, and feel refreshed in the morning, you know, that's a personal jo choice. I believe that it's just better and it's safer just to, not have them uh, in, in the bedroom because it's more than just being able to fall asleep. We're not really sure still how these things may affect the quality of sleep. So there are different stages of sleep. There are two main um, major categories. One is, you know, prior to falling asleep, it's called sleep latency. How long does it take you to fall asleep? And then there's obviously all the time that you are asleep. And then within that time that you are asleep, there are two, two phases or two general uh, periods within that. One is what's called the non-RAM or non-rapid eye movement uh, stages of sleep. And there are four of those stages. Those are the non-dreaming stages of sleep. And then you get into RAM, the deepest stage when you're, when you're dreaming. And so we don't really know, with, and, and being able to tr go through those different stages and get into that deep, those deep stages of sleep, especially the restorative deeper stages like stage three and four of sleep are crucial for the restorative processes and the restorative benefits of sleep um, to be able to do their job while we're asleep, for our, for our body to do its job and restore and refresh while we're asleep. It needs to get into those deep stages of sleep. And so we don't really know with the technology, even with the blue light being blocked, you know, is it, 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 are the other wavelengths of light, is the other types of stimulation from those devices uh, keeping us from from spending enough time in different the different stages of sleep to have really optimal benefits from from sleep. Yeah, so, so I'm a little more cautious when it comes to that. Gotcha. Yeah, makes sense. Um, the you know you were talking about non REM versus REM. So what can we kind of unpack that a little further? Like how how does someone know with today's technology? How do we know for getting those different stages of non-REM versus REM sleep and how much should we typically get per night? Like how many cycles? Right. So it, it depends on the age, um, how many cycles to get and, and, and what the, what the research uh, shows. And I, I, I don't remember off the top of my head at each, at every age, you know, what's the optimal, uh, you know, that, that people should be getting in each one of those. What we do know though, is that as people age, even in the absence of technology or in anything else, generally speaking, as we age, the amount of time spent in the deeper stages of sleep, stages three and four, decreases. And so you can, there's a good way to know 
if you're if you're spending more time in the stage one and two, which are the lighter stages of sleep, because you get woken up easily. It's easy to wake up. What I've seen clinically with that in younger uh, patients is typically uh, people who have chronic fatigue syndrome or fibromyalgia. They tend to be hyper alert. They tend to be under a lot of chronic stress and that will keep them in stages one and two sleep. They won't fall into the deeper stages of sleep and they get woken up really easily. So if you're the type of person that gets startled easily uh, and gets woken up really easily throughout the night or your partner tells you that, that you do, then that can be an indication that you're not getting enough deep sleep. And another indication, of course, is you know, are you feeling refreshed in the morning? Because mm-hmm. it is those deeper stages of sleep that are the restorative stages of of sleep. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So let's, let's kind of go into this, like looking at these two main categories of insomnia. So there's sleep onset insomnia, and then what we would consider like sleep interruption insomnia, or um, you know, sort of sleep latency insomnia. I guess mm-hmm. um, if we could to go into some of the hormonal or neurotransmitter processes that would help someone if they were dealing with sleep onset insomnia. So just think about what's happening that when, when you're trying to fall asleep. Sure. I, I love this topic. So the way that I, that I think of it is there are two general phases in the night of sleep, and that is falling asleep and staying asleep. And when I, uh, speak with patients and I'm, I'm evaluating their sleep, I, I say, do you have any difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep? So falling asleep is, uh, difficulty falling asleep is also called sleep phase delay and, dif- and difficulty staying asleep is called sleep phase advance, meaning you're waking up earlier than you should. And as you're falling asleep, we talked about melatonin. So that's, that's important. And as I, and it's interesting because there are different hormones that are sedating and, and calming. So melatonin uh, is one of those and GABA is another one that, that um, increases as people are, are falling asleep. But as you look at, when I really dug into the sleep research and the endocrinology, the hormones around sleep and what's going on, you get into the deeper stages, stage three, stage four, uh, we really don't know what's going on yet in terms of, of uh, hormones. Uh, being in, involved uh, specifically. So the way that I think about it and looking at the, the sort of constellation of sleep research is out there is, is I take what we do know, and that is what helps us fall asleep and what keeps us from falling asleep. And then what helps us stay asleep that we know and what wakes us up. And how can I use that clinically and how can I use that in terms of you know, you know, what, what I do with, uh, with, you know, formulating and creating solutions uh, to these sorts of problems through dietary supplements to help, to help people. Mm-hmm. So melatonin is very important. GABA is very important. Glycine is an amino acid. It's, it's also can act as a neurotransmitter. It's inhibitory. So it calms down the central nervous system. So a lot of times why people, there are different reasons why people have a hard time falling asleep. Anxiety can be, be one high stress. So that cortisol response can be, can be, can do it. Also 
what what also can happen is people are uh, if they have muscle tightness and they're sore let's say their their back and their shoulders are super tight they just can't get into a into a um, really comfortable position where they can fully just relax their bodies that can make it difficult for somebody uh, to fall asleep and so magnesium can be great for that and magnesium is a nice muscle relaxant it's a very gentle uh, helps relax muscles gently and naturally, and so in in those cases, you know that that might be able to be uh, helpful. Then there are um, you know herbs that that are just very calming herbs that have a long history of traditional use of them, and modern science has teased out the the mechanisms by how how they they work as well. It can be very very helpful, like magnolia bark extract or hops or skull cap, those, those sorts of things. So I take more of sort of an integrative approach of saying, okay, what do we know in terms of uh, both the endocrinology of sleep, but what do we just know as clinicians? What do we know with how the body works and how you know, the body can get into a relaxed state of sleep? And then once somebody is asleep, the question is, uh, yes, we know things that can keep them asleep. So GABA we can keep somebody asleep. The challenge with people just taking, you know, GABA supplements, for example, um, or taking melatonin and trying to stay asleep for with melatonin is that's not all that's going on. And invariably, what people have complained to me about is they have to take more and more to, to stay asleep through the night, and then they wake up with that feeling groggy and hungover feeling. Mm-hmm. They just got to shake the cobwebs out. It takes them longer to feel fully awake in the awake in the morning. And so I was looking at uh, this a little bit differently saying, okay, that's what keeps people asleep, but, but what, what wakes them up? So how can we work with the body's own rhythms and the body's own, own system to, to, to keep people from, from just waking up, whatever is going on with that, instead of just trying to take a sledgehammer, keep them asleep. Right. So what, I, what I discovered is, is, and it's very common to have um, poor blood sugar regulation, but if somebody is, has poor blood sugar regulation, what happens is your body will secrete cortisol, uh, epinephrine, when you, and cortisol when you're asleep because that will release uh, stored sugar. It will break down what's called glycogen. That's a storage form of sugar in, in the liver and in muscles. And it will release that into the bloodstream to increase your, your blood sugar. But what it also does, it wakes you up. So people typically are waking up in the middle of the night around the same time in the middle of the night. Uh, I consider that a potential indicator that they may have something going on with their blood sugar. And so I also like to work with them on uh, regulating their blood sugar through, through diet, maybe trying to eat uh, eight to 10 grams of protein before they go to bed. And for some people it's rare in my clinical practice, but occasionally that, that was all they needed. And it was beautiful because it wasn't pills or powders. It was just food. And we can do, when we can do things with diet and lifestyle, the patients and, and people are so much better off for it um, than just popping pills. And, but what I do like to use also uh, and what I've put into my, my formula, my sleep relief product is adaptogenic herbs like ashwagandha, for example, which helps blunt helps decrease the response to that, that cortisol to help calm down the system to hopefully help people so they're not waking up. Or if they do wake up, it's not as severe and they're able to fall back asleep much easier. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the middle of the night awakening is probably the most aggravating and frustrating component of this, this issue for people. Um, 
especially the one that I think has the least amount of solutions um, that I, that I see clinically and, you know, what I hear from patients almost daily. Um, so it's great that you've thought about that. I, you know, when I hear people having middle of the night awakening symptoms or having middle of the night insomnia, you know, I always go through a little bit of a checklist. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that. For, so beyond the blood sugar issue, I also will ask them if they have any kind of pain disorders or reflux issues. Um, those often can wake people. Also problems with nocturia, you know, urinary um, issues, um, secondary like prostate concerns. So these are little things also to kind of weigh in. I don't know if absolutely. you can comment yeah. on that. No, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. And if, you know, when I'm doing an evaluation, digging deeper in terms of the waking up in the middle of the night, yes. How many times do you wake up? Are you getting up to pee or are you just waking up? Are you, are you coughing when you lie down? That can be a symptom of acid, acid reflux. So, you, so you're right in terms of, um, you know, trying to look at the underlying cause and, and serve people as best we, we can. Those are very, very important questions to ask. And yeah. Lines of inquiry to go down. And speaking to, you know, what you just said about the cortisol issue, it's, it's a really like almost, a, almost like a, you're, you wake and you're almost wide awake, isn't it? Sort of, it's almost like a, um, not quite a startle response when you wake up, but when people have that insomnia that's related to that cortisol dysregulation, it's almost like they wake and they're, they're kind of more alert than you would expect. Yes, and they have a hard time uh, maybe turning their thoughts off. And there are different reasons for that. You know, it may not be blood sugar. It could be that they've got just feeling stressed and they've got a lot on their minds and a lot on their plates. So one of the things that I, if that seems to be the case that I think can be helpful for some people is if uh, just make a list of everything you have to do. If you're running over everything you have to do the next day in your head, you know, before you go to bed, get it all out so you feel organized, so you feel more in control. Yeah. And that sometimes helps people be able to uh, sleep better. But what happens also is people get accustomed, the body gets accustomed to that cortisol. And there's, um, there's a, a phenomenon that, that, that exists where if you are, you're under a lot of stress and then you try and go to sleep, you, know, you may be, you just sit there and you stare at the ceiling. You can't really, you fall asleep. And that's, that's the cortisol. And, it takes a while for the cortisol to get out of the system and for things to get, you know, regulated back into a normal pattern, a health, a healthy pattern. And, and part of what's important to that is, is, is doing things that will reduce, reduce your, your stress load. Mm -hmm. But also uh, Fitbit did an amazing bit of research. Fitbit makes those wearable devices, tracking devices. They had over, I think it was 8 billion data points from their users and sleep and they they crunched all the, the data that they had and they discovered the number one predictor of healthy sleep is going to bed at about the same time every night mm. training your body getting into that routine of course there's all the sleep hygiene stuff that that uh, entails you know has to do with making sure the room is dark and the right temperature and research has shown the optimal temperature for sleep is 69 to 70 degrees uh, making sure it's quiet. But what they found is the number one biggest predictor uh, in both men and women for uh, good, regular, healthy sleep is going to bed at about the same time every night. And what they found is that on the weekends when people would you know, stay awake later, let's say they, you know, they're 
you know, on a routine during the week because they've got school or they've got work. And then Friday comes out and they go out with, with friends or family and they go have a good time and they're out late. And Saturday they're out late. Well, by the time Sunday night rolls around, they're sitting there staring at the ceiling. They can't go to sleep because they've essentially trained their body to stay up later. They've essentially flown to another time zone mm-hmm. as if they've induced their, their own jet lag and they've turned this social jet lag. Right. And so that's really important too, is just getting into that, uh, that routine. Mm-hmm. Makes a lot of sense. You know, it's um, like we were talking about earlier, like the circadian rhythm and, you know, this concept of sleep pressure, you know, which is, you know, you wake up, you have a certain amount of alertness and energy that if you're on a rhythm and your body is on a clock that it can trust, you know, it's, it just makes a lot of sense that that's going to lead to, you know, consistent good sleep patterns. Um, before we before we leave this this topic of the uh, sleep latency issue, um, I, it's you did something that was in my mind brilliant that I I sort of searched long and hard for for a long time with um, supplements for my patients, but you thought about this issue and you kind of came up with like a time released supplement. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's because that that's really unique. Well, um, thank you for the, the feedback. I'm glad you're loving it and I'm glad your patients are, are, are loving it and getting, um, getting a lot of benefit from, from my work and what I've, what I've done. What I, when, in looking in terms of what we know about hormones and what hormones are involved in falling asleep and staying asleep, I started looking at, at them. We talked about mel- melatonin and invariably whenever somebody says I'm having difficulty sleeping and I ask them what they've tried, uh, almost always they say melatonin. They've tried melatonin. And what happens though is they end up taking some melatonin. It may help, uh, but then they have to take more melatonin and more melatonin. And at some point they're taking so much melatonin that it's keeping them asleep at night. But as I mentioned before, then they end up feeling groggy and hungover in, in the morning. So melatonin actually has what's called a half-life. So all chemicals in the body have a a half-life. That means how long does it take for half of the substance to be eliminated from the body? The half-life of melatonin is 45 minutes, about 45 minutes. So for ease of calculation, let's just say, you know, let's give it an hour. Let's be generous. Let's say you take, you know, standard uh, common dosages of melatonin as dietary supplements or, you know, one or three or five milligrams. Let's say you take a three milligram melatonin uh, tablet and an hour later, half of it's gone. So that's, you've got one and a half milligrams. You fall asleep, great, but an hour later, you've got one and a half milligrams left. An hour after that, 50% of that is gone. You've got, um, 0.7, you've got um, 750 micrograms left. An hour later, half of that's gone and so on. So what happens is at some point you wake up because you haven't really dealt with the, the, the more of the picture, the more holistic aspects when it comes to, to, to sleep because sleep is in our, in our brain and our, and our neurochemistry, it doesn't come down to just, you know, one pill or one substance. It's a complex interaction. It's a web of interactions. I talked about magnesium and muscle tightness and that sort of thing. Um, so it's not just necessarily melatonin. So what I did then in looking at the half-life and how the body cycles through the different phases of sleep and how different chemicals or, or uh, different clinical things that we, we see with patients are, are happening at different times of the night, what I created is a, a biphasic time release tablet. 
And that is phase one is the immediate release, the nutrients release about, you know, 30, 45 minutes. And that quick release phase one helps us fall asleep naturally, gently helps people relax and helps them fall asleep. And then stage two, the nutrients in the second stage, the second phase are released over the next about four hours to help people maintain sleep or stay asleep. Um, and the goal then is that, you know, as so that gets us up to, you know, four and a half, five hours, you know, then, then over the next few hours, as those chemicals are being metabolized and broken down in the body by eight hours, seven or eight hours of sleep, you know, they're out of the body enough and people wake up and they are, they feel refreshed. They've gotten a good night's sleep. If they maybe woken up in the night, they're even, they, they're, they can fall back asleep easier because of the nutrients. Let's say they've got to get up to go to the bathroom. But when they wake up in the morning, they don't feel hungover or groggy. They just feel refreshed and ready for the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I've noticed you know, the feedback that I've had from patients using it and I've used it myself is, you know, that, that it really gets people through some of the night that they, they weren't able to get through previously. So, um, you know, I think it's it's uh, something that hasn't been available before. So I, we really appreciate that. Well, um, thank you. And, and the reason I created it is, and why I do anything, and you know, with my osteoporosis supplement, for example, I couldn't find the dose in the form of nutrients needed to help my my patients in my clinical practice. So I created it. You know, stuff mm -hmm. that was supported by clinical trials for fracture reduction. You know, similar to this. I sent out a survey to my NBI customers about a year and a half, two years ago, asking them what's the biggest challenges that they have. And the number one, even with all the sleep products on the market, the number one requested new product for me to, to research and come up with a solution for, and the number one thing that people were struggling with was sleep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, the, you know, a couple things that I just want to see if we can go into um, before we wrap up today is, so, you know, there's acute insomnia situations. And then what we've talked mainly is more like chronic insomnia, acute insomnia, I would say is more, um, you know, like a sudden event. Someone has like some sudden bad news, loss of a loved one or loss of a job, or if, you know, their job's on the line and, you know, they might not have dealt with insomnia before, um, and so in those situations, you know, a lot of times people will turn to Western medicine, um, which may be appropriate for those situations, um, just to kind of assure the ability to fall asleep and function at least somewhat throughout the day. Now, moving forward, if us, an acute insomnia condition converts into a chronic insomnia condition, then we have a whole other slew of things to worry about. So what, what are your concerns about someone who stays on like Western medicine, insomnia medications, um, if they're dealing with chronic insomnia versus acute insomnia? The research is very clear. The, the, the medications that are most prescribed for insomnia are the benzodiazepine category or the non-benzodiazepine or the benzodiazepine-like categories of medications. They go by names like Lunesta, um, Ambien, uh, those sorts of things that first of all, they 
don't work all that well. They don't improve the quality of sleep. They may improve the quantity of sleep, but they, they, they keep people from getting into that deep restorative stages of sleep. But they also, one of the challenges, well, one of the many challenges of those are, especially in the elderly, people 65 years or older, it, it, it significantly increases their risks of falling. If you are to get up at night and go to the bathroom of falling and, and having a fall related injury, like a, like a fracture. And in fact, research came out and it said the, the, the ability to, to, you have to treat, I believe uh, off the top of my head, uh, three times or four times more patients to get to, to benefit one patient versus to get harm. Meaning, let's say, you know, you, you, and I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, unfortunately, but say you have to treat, you know, three patients to get uh, seven patients or eight patients to get benefit from it. Um, and yet you only have to treat two patients to see harm. So that's become widely recognized that they're not that effective. I mean, yes, they'll knock people out short term. And that's, I think, the short term fix that you were talking about. But they also have very serious risks. And actually, if people take them longer term, they've been associated with increased risk of dementia, increased risk of cancer. And, and so they're not, they're not good long-term solutions, and they definitely don't get to the underlying cause of what's, what's going on. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think in my practice, you know, um, I do, you know, if people are doing, dealing with the acute insomnia issue where it's, you know, they'll call me up and say, you know, this really kind of sudden tragic thing happened and I can't fall asleep. I mean, I, I try to give them sort of all views um, and then get them onto natural support if this, this problem converts to, to a chronic condition as soon as possible. I try to get them onto natural approaches. Right. And, and, and it depends also for me on how involved somebody wants to be in their own, in their own health. So, yes, there are situational situations that go on in people's lives that are, you know, stress, both stressful and tragic. And uh, I think for people to experience insomnia or difficulty sleeping during those periods of time is frankly normal. Um, and it, it is one of the body's normal, natural ways of coping with that stress and, and processing it. Mm-hmm. Now people do need to get sleep. And so having something that can help them get restorative sleep can help them heal from whatever's going on as well. So that's important, whether it's a short-term medication or natural products, but longer term, you know, I think it's, it's important for people to look, uh, hopefully they're willing to be active participants in their own health. Look at what else they can, they, they can do. Yeah. Is it the acid reflux or their dietary changes? Uh, the acid reflux you, you mentioned earlier. Can they do things like gentle yoga and stress reduction techniques that have been shown to improve sleep? Will they get rid of the devices at night? Um, can they reduce stress by saying no to more things? People are so overcommitted in our society. Right. And most, and most of the time, there's quite a few things that people can stop doing. And in fact, I think, uh, and I'm not the, I didn't invent this. I'm not the first one to say it. Uh, that your stop doing list is probably more important than your to-do list. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And since we're, I'm recording in Seattle, we'll, we'll kind of leave the caffeine question for another time. 
<laughs> I don't want to lose our listener base. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, but that, that is another thing I think, you know, to consider is, you know, people who are drinking um, caffeine throughout the day versus cutting off at a certain hour, like earlier in the day. Yep. Um, so uh, what could go wrong with melatonin or supplementing melatonin on a daily basis? Anything? I get this question a lot. There's nothing documented that can really go wrong. In fact, in cancer, we'll, it'll be prescribed in doses as much higher to 20 milligrams for anti-cancer benefits. It's not addictive. It's not like the medications that, that can be addictive. It's not going to, uh, you know, it, it can suppress your body's own production of it, but it's not going to, to override it so that you can't produce it anymore. There's no long-term addictions and it's been shown in many studies to be uh, to be safe and in fact i think it's also important to recognize even the small dose you know one milligram uh three milligrams which is still a lot more than what our body produces in the brain the gut actually produces melatonin as well and it produces about 20 times more melatonin than what's produced in the in the brain so the role of melatonin like many other things in the body is not just one thing. It's not just with sleep. It has, it modulates the immune system. It's an antioxidant. Uh, it has a lot of other beneficial things as well. So I'm, I'm not really worried about, I'm more worried about people taking too much melatonin so that they're just waking up really groggy in the morning. And it's not, it's not really the most effective solution for them. Mm -hmm. So on that note, like lactating females who are, um, you know, lactating mothers, uh, that are currently breastfeeding and then how about children, toddlers, infants? Um, what's your thoughts on using melatonin or getting exposed to exogenous melatonin? So I actually, I have two kids there now. I've got a son who's 13 and a daughter who's 10 and I've used melatonin with them since they were little. So I think that if you're relying on something every day, there's a problem. And even if it's a dietary supplement, that if you're not, and, and as we age and we know that, uh, you know, the amount I mentioned of deep sleep that people get into decreases as we get older. And so, you know, there are people who can benefit from long-term, you know, supplementing with, with nutrients longer term. But in kids, for example, if, if they need something more than just occasionally, that you should be consulting with a healthcare provider, even though these are available over the counter to see if you could, and, and ideally a naturopathic physician uh, because we're trained in integrative medicine and to try and identify the underlying cause and look at diet and lifestyle or an integrative MD. Also there are phenomenal ones out there uh, mm -hmm. who share this philosophy, mm -hmm. but really look at the underlying cause. So I, I I'm not really worried uh, about short term use in either lactating women or, in in children that's great yeah so those occasional really rough nights where um everybody's pulling their hair out trying to fall asleep yeah uh, that could be uh could come in handy so um yeah well this has been really informative um can you just tell us just kind of in closing some just brief take-home messages and then also just a little bit about what you're doing at mbi um related to sleep Sure. I, take home messages are with respect to sleep that the research is very clear that going to bed at about the same time every night is the biggest predictor for quality sleep. 
And we need about eight hours of sleep a night. It's not just the quantity of sleep. It has to be good quality of sleep. So making sure you're going to bed about the same time every night, not reading devices in bed. Uh, don't take your, your phone or your tablet to, to, to bed with you. Uh, making sure the room is at about 69 or 70 degrees, a good temperature and dark and, and um, um, quiet. Those are all, those are all important. Uh, beyond that, you know, ensuring that you know, you're just taking care of yourself as a human being, that if you're feeling over, overstretched, overcommitted, overstressed, that you evaluate that and, and you possibly reframe things to take things off your plate so you can make your health a uh, priority. And that when necessary, there are excellent you know, dietary supplements out there. I created one because uh, people, I was, people from whom I was hearing were reporting they couldn't find things that, that worked well or worked consistently well for them. And so I went and dug into the research for over a year and after dozens or so uh, combinations and uh, experimenting with things, I came up with my product called Sleep Relief. Um, you can learn, people can learn more about it if, if they want on my website, nbihealth.com. And my whole emphasis with well, the work that I do is to make it all very, uh, you know, very rooted very strongly in, in the research so that you don't have to take my opinion for these things. There are hundreds of research studies and citations on the, on the website. Um, so yes, people can believe me or they're welcome to go and, and dig into those studies. I have the, I have every study that's cited on there. If anybody wants the actual file, the PDF file, just reach out through the website. All those go to me. If you want to ask me any questions, they can go to mbihealth.com and fill out the online form or call the toll-free number and all those messages will, will get to me. I'm happy to share any of this research with anyone because one of the things that I'm also very passionate about is just helping educate people so that they can take better care of themselves and their families. Great. Well, it's wonderful. Um, thanks for being on. I'm I'm motivated uh, right now to have a really good night's sleep tonight. So I think uh, this served its its purpose. It got me kind of focused and locked in on my own uh, what my own needs are. So I hope I, I'm confident I did that for others. So thanks for being on again, and um, I look forward to catching up down the road. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Great speaking with you. Same here. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to this latest episode of the One Things podcast. I would love for you to let me know how you're enjoying the episodes by liking and sharing these episodes. Please like or subscribe to the episode in your favorite podcast player, whether it's iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify, or any of the other podcast players. We are likely on those networks. Please share these episodes widely with your friends, family, and colleague members. Because let's face it, it's really hard to get good naturopathic, nutritional, integrative medicine knowledge. There's a lot of information being shared out there, but when it's coming from the mouth of someone who's been in the trenches and has gone through formal training, it is something that you can trust more. And I want this information to get out to people because there's not a lot of access to this information throughout this country and throughout the world. So thank you for supporting this mission and 
I hope that you're learning as much as I am and that it's improving the health of you and your loved ones. And we'll see you next time on the One Thing Podcast. This is Dr. Adam Rindy signing off.